So in Hebrews chapter 12, the author calls us to have full attention fixed on Jesus. So Hebrews 12, 2. Hebrews 12, 2. We're told to look to Jesus. Hebrews 12, 3. We're told to consider Jesus. And in doing so with our minds, in doing so with our attention, in doing so with our affection, we discover there's actually a real gift to us as we think clearly and carefully about Jesus, about the God-man, about our Messiah. So this Lenten season that we are walking into, these next six weeks before Easter Sunday, no matter where you are on the skeptic, to seeker, to follower of Jesus spectrum, I invite you to consider Jesus. I invite you to consider Jesus together with us. And so to to do that, to frame that for these next six weeks, we are going to look at some of the final moments, some of the final words of Jesus uh, as he goes to the cross. We're going to take an extended look at the cross to, to fuel our consideration. So as you may or you may not know, uh, the New Testament begins with four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each giving their own account of Jesus and his life and his ministry. Uh, And all these accounts, the four gospels, they, they vary, not in contradiction, but they vary in perspective. And you get, in many ways, like a a diamond prism. As you spin it, you get a different glance of the beauty in various ways. And so the four gospel writers give us different perspectives on Jesus and on the story that God is unfolding through him. But all the gospels end the same. And in many ways, the, the central event, the Jesus story, culminates on the cross with resurrection to follow. But it's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul was not afraid to say we preach Christ crucified crucified because there is something that happens in that event where we see the wisdom of God on display we see the power of God unfold so Jesus in fulfillment of Israel's story in fulfillment of the eternal plan of God ends up nailed to a tree crucified in a display of God's upside down wisdom and kingdom power Now, what's interesting to me, when you read through the different gospel writers, and as they talk about the cross, and they talk about Jesus on the cross, they don't emphasize the graphic, gruesome, physical nature of his death. As they talk about Jesus dying on the cross, it's not an exaltation of gory. As some have said, they don't linger over blood, spittle, and whips. In fact, if you read Luke's gospel, Luke just says, and there they crucified him. So as you hear us say, we're going to spend right, six, seven weeks now talking about focusing in on the, the, the final moments of Jesus on the cross. 
The goal is not six or seven weeks somehow to explain all the gory graphic details of how they brutalized Jesus. And they did beat him. They did brutalize Jesus. But rather, the goal in these next few weeks is for us to listen to the words of Jesus as he speaks from the cross and gives us insight into what that means for him, for us, and for the world. So scholars have long noted that during the crucifixion, Jesus speaks, he utters seven recorded cries from the cross. Most of them are really short. Some of them appear in certain Gospels, but not in other Gospels. But when you kind of take them and you put them all together, these seven final cries of Jesus from the cross, they actually carry profound insight. And they reveal more about Jesus, more about God, more about our own human condition. So here are the seven that we're going to take a look at over the next few weeks, just kind of sneak preview of where we're going. These are the seven statements, the seven cries from the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Today you will be with me in paradise as Jesus speaks to one of the other criminals on the cross next to him as he cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Woman, behold your son. I thirst. And then we'll end on Easter Sunday this year talking about it is finished. And Jesus' cry of victory. So, that's kind of what we're going to do these next few weeks. We'll walk through these statements from the Gospels and try and unpack them for our community, for our lives. So we're going to jump right in tonight into cry number one, week number one. You ready? Okay. Open your Bibles, if you haven't yet, to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23. We're going to start in verse 32 and begin to set the scene. Luke 23, 32 says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. So here we have Luke's account, his gospel account. We find Jesus in his final moments being led to the destination of his death. His his cross, we're told earlier, is being carried for him by a man that they snatched out from the crowd, Simon of Cyrene. And Jesus is then brought to this location called the Skull or Golgotha. He's placed up between two criminals deserving of death one on his left and one on his right, and we'll talk, I guess, more about that next week and that interchange that comes. We're told at the end of verse 34 that kind of the scene unfolding around the cross, there at Golgotha, there are people gathered around, and some are are casting lots to divide up Jesus' garments. 
Essentially a, an idea of rolling dice to determine who gets the clothes. Verse 35, the atmosphere, if you were there in that moment and could watch it unfold, it was one of ridicule and scorn, mockery. People were jeering at him, yelling at Jesus. Like, why can't you save yourself? He said he could save others. He saved others. Why can't he help himself? The Roman soldiers were there. They're acting in disdain, sneering at him. King of the Jews. That's what the sign said. But they're making mockery of him. Here's the king, now stripped naked, having been beaten up on the... There's the king. All hail the king. So even though at this point it's early in the day, Jesus is exhausted after a night of lies, false accusation, beating, and torture. And it's from that place, it's from that scene of a, a circus of mockery and jeering and heckling, we get Jesus' first cry. Verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So as we consider Jesus this Lenten season, we begin with the Son's cry to the Father for forgiveness extended to others. The great Preacher Charles Spurgeon once noted, he said, this is the first of the seven cries on the cross, and the first cry is not about himself, as I think it would be for me. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's something different here, right? There's something different in what Jesus is doing. There's something, in some ways, disorienting about what Jesus is doing here. There's something revolutionary about Jesus' response. So as we consider Jesus here first week, first cry, here's what I want you to consider. I want you to consider how Jesus' cry reveals the instincts of God. The instincts of God being revealed. Instincts that I think have been twisted and misunderstood over time. Do you know what I mean when I say instincts? Here's, here's a silly little example. When I was in high school, I dislocated... You can leave that off for a second. Thank you. Whenever there's something on the screen, everyone's going, what's that? When I was in high school, I dislocated my kneecap, my patella, twice. Once during a high school basketball game, and another time at the bottom of a dog pile underneath my friends. My very heavy trapping friends without giving you the gory details of my anguish both times for the past 25 years I am really protective of my left kneecap you can ask my wife and kids when it, whenever one gets anyone gets near it I, I, I bend it I move it away I cover it my my instinct is to protect it my instinct is to pull away why because I don't want that happening again and I don't even have to think about it it has become second nature to me that I'm going to keep you away from my left knee it's instinctual so again in that vein it's a silly little analogy 
I'm trying to ask, like, what is God's instinct like? What is God like? What is instinctual for the divine? What is instinctual for God toward broken, sinful humanity? What is God's instinct toward a mocking, jeering, crucifying crowd? What is God's instinct toward humanity at its worst? Or to get it personal, what's God's instinct toward you? When he looks at you and he sees your life and he sees your failure and your sin. You can put that back up. This is one of my favorite Far Side cartoons. The piano dangling precariously over this poor unsuspecting person's head. And if you can't see the computer screen, it's God with his finger over the smite button. And so, is, is, this, is this God's instinct toward humanity? Is this God's instinct toward you? And I call you through the Gospels tonight to consider Jesus because instinctually he is not like you or me. And this is what I mean by that. Next slide. First point is that his first move, as we see him on the cross, mocking, jeering crowd around him, throwing dice for his clothes. His first move is intercession, not condemnation. Like Jesus in this moment physically is on the cross. And I won't tease out the torturous pain, but I, but I will say this. Fleming Rutledge has a magnificent book called The Crucifixion where she talks about the cross. And she says that the cross, this mode of death, is intentionally offensive. She says that crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity. The last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment, degradation was the whole point. Right? It wasn't a clean death. Like we've, we have managed in our modern society to have clean deaths. This was not a clean death. It was defilement to the third degree in that it defiled your body, it defiled your mind, and it defiled you socially among others. It was dehumanizing degradation. And Jesus' first cry is this, to address someone else, the Father, about something else other than his own torture and death. Because Jesus' instinct is for intercession and advocacy. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Intercession, not condemnation. Advocacy, not accusation. Some have pointed out that the, the beauty in the statement isn't just the words, but it, it's the fact that we get to listen in on this communication between the Father and the Son. We get to eavesdrop in on this tender conversation of the inner workings of the Trinity and this is what the Son speaks to the Father, the, the one who has been in loving relationship since eternity past. And with his voice, through his struggling breath, his instinct is to intercede, to, to step in on behalf of his enemies. Do they deserve it? No. But that's the beauty of having an intercessor. Would you consider Jesus the great intercessor? His instinct is not just to hit the smite button. His instinct, Jesus' instinct, 
is to intercede for you. And he did it with his first cry on the cross. And the author of Hebrews tells us it's still happening to this very day. Have you read Hebrews 7.25? Hebrews says, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And because of the intercessory work of Jesus, he can save to the uttermost. And he lives for this. This conversation with the Father, I believe, hasn't stopped. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. So now we're talking about a reorientation of our understanding of the instincts of God. Jesus lives to make intercession for those who draw near through him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But there's another piece of this too, uh, another part for us to consider. So his first move is intercession, not condemnation, but his first move is also forgiveness and not retaliation, which to me is just remarkable how unlike me Jesus is. Because when we're wronged, right, when we are cut off, When someone spites us, our instinct marred with sin often is retaliation. It happened to me this week when that guy wouldn't let me in. I'm trying to merge and he he was not his turn. He cut me off and something inside me goes, oh, oh yeah? It happened this last week when I was playing City League basketball and this guy fouled me really hard. I was like, oh, let's bring it down the other end. Let's go. Give me the ball. Right? What ignites within us? Retaliation. Let's get them back. Let's make them pay. Let's destroy them. I think of the story, Luke chapter 9, when Jesus and his disciples are walking through a Samaritan village, and the Samaritan village doesn't welcome them or receive them. And again, mind you, that whole story is loaded with a ton of political, cultural hostility between Jews and Samaritans. But they, Jesus and his crew, come through the village and they are not welcomed. Luke 9, 54, when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? All right, that's it. Oh, oh Yeah. I'm not welcome here? All right, Jesus, let's call down fire from heaven. And Jesus says, no. Right? He turns and he rebukes them. They're not going to welcome us. Burn them! Fire! Let fire fall. Well, maybe we aren't always aggressive when we're wrong. Some of us are when we're wronged. Maybe our first instinct isn't mass obliteration. But maybe it is self-protection, which again reminds me of when Jesus was in the garden and he's being betrayed and he's being arrested and Peter is quick to pull out the sword to fight, to self-protect. In Matthew 26, 52, Jesus says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? I I could call a legion of angels to come right now 
I think it's safe to say that we have all sorts of different responses when wronged, ranging from self-protection to whole hog retaliation. But Jesus instinctually moves in a different direction. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he could have called down fire. He could have called for backup. He could have summoned angels. This is the Jesus way. He calls for forgiveness. Forgiveness. There's a concept. Forgiveness. What does that mean? In, in general, the idea of forgiveness means to release the wrongdoer. The Greek word he uses here, aphiemi, it means to leave, to cease, to stop. Jesus calls for an end. And he right says, forgiveness brings the life of heaven to earth, God's future into the present. And as people analyze this passage, many ask, well, who exactly is Jesus forgiving here? Is he forgiving the Romans because they were behind this? Is he forgiving these particular soldiers for killing him? Is he forgiving the mockers who are throwing insults at him, the scorners? Is he forgiving the gamblers for his clothes? Is he forgiving the Jews who set the whole thing up? Is he forgiving anyone who played a role in his death? And I think regardless of how you specifically parse it out, this is clear. Jesus is asking for the forgiveness of his, quote, enemies, for those who would wish him harm. And they didn't fully know what they were doing. Yet they knew what they were doing, but they didn't know fully what all was happening. In this moment, we begin to see love in its highest form. Love for self, though challenging at times, has some natural instinct to it. Love for friends brings us reward. Love for a neighbor is our command. Love for enemies is unheard of. It's out of this world. And I'm convinced that our first call as we consider Jesus here is to understand the offer of Jesus to us. His offer to forgive us as those in our own choices of rebellion and sin have chosen to become enemies of God. His instinct to forgive, the instinct to forgive those who were his enemies is an offer that continues to be extended to you and to me. Jesus offers to say, I forgive. Father, forgive. For the ways in which you and I have acted in hostility toward God, in thought, in word, in deed, in omission, in commission, in either denial or in shame, we can end up becoming blind to the instinct of Jesus. Jesus' instinct here is to intercede and not condemn, is to forgive, not retaliate. And that makes all the difference in the world for someone like me.
We've sung tonight already. It's a song I haven't heard in a while about how he loves us. Do you understand the sacrificial love of Jesus for you? That would be willing to lay down his body and blood for the forgiveness of our sin. One more thing, though, to highlight. Not only is this movement of intercession and forgiveness, but his first move, his first cry on the cross, it's the only hope we have to reshape our instincts too. And I think that's what Jesus desires. And we look to Jesus as the one who grants us forgiveness, but Jesus desires this way, this response, this instinct to be the instinct of his church, to be the instinct of his people too. And yes, we, we celebrate the forgiveness of our sin. And yes, we celebrate that he has dealt with the barrier that exists between us and God. And yes, we have this desire for reunion with God in eternity, new heavens and new earth. But this act and this cry serves as a picture of what Jesus desires for you. That this kind of response would flow from you too. Me too. Isn't this what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 43? He says, you've heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And Jesus models this for us. He forgives us in our failure, but he says, I'm calling you to this too. That this would be a reshaping, a formation of your character, a reformation of your instincts that would be to retaliate and to continue the cycle of violence, but rather there's a new way offered through Jesus. A chapter later in Matthew 6, he says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Yes, forgiveness is meant to be what flows through Christ to us. But forgiveness is not meant to stop in us. It is meant to flow through us to others. And the way we deal with, quote, enemies, the way we deal with the other, the way that we deal with those people is reframed and reshaped and remade in a new, different way. Jesus has come to form kingdom instincts in us. Not just to zap us to get to heaven for eternity. Jesus wants to shape our character. He wants to form our lives. And we can use big words like sanctification and transformation. But as those who have received his intercession and his forgiveness, his deepest desire for us is to see this kind of life and response be formed in us too. Jesus declared the cycle of vengeance ends with him and the cycle of blessing begins through his resurrection to be then shared by his people to the nations. Jesus wants to form kingdom instincts in 
us, loving our enemies, forgiving those who wrong us, praying for those who persecute us, not simply not simply repeating what we see happen everywhere else. We are called to be a different people, to live a different life. That's what holiness means, set apart. Who's your enemy? Quote, enemy. Who is your other? Sometimes art speaks in ways that words can't. And so I came across this series of pictures this week, and I just want to put them up. I think it captures the heartbeat of God forming new kingdom instincts in us through these series of pictures. This first one is Jesus washing the feet of someone holding a sign. Can you read the sign? It says, no vax mandates. And the next picture is Jesus washing the feet of someone carrying the sign that says, vaccines save, ignorance kills. Jesus washing the feet, someone with a police vest on. Jesus washing the feet of a young black man with a skateboard. Jesus washing the feet of a man with a rainbow flag. Jesus washing the feet of a child who's lost others. Jesus washing the feet of a prisoner. Jesus washing the feet of someone holding a Ukrainian flag. Jesus washing the feet of a Russian. All of those are symbols that evoke responses, very polarized responses in our world today. Jesus has come to shape kingdom instincts in us. Do you know that you have an advocate, an intercessor, Do you know that you have in Jesus the source of true forgiveness? Are you willing this Lenten season to consider how he would want to work that out through you? Because it's the kingdom way that through love, the, quote, enemy becomes family. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we consider you in these weeks to come, may you open up our eyes 
to the greatness of your ministry to us. The greatness of your cries of intercession. The greatness of your forgiveness that can wash the stain that otherwise could not be cleansed. And may you open our eyes to the way you want to push that into us and form us to be like you. And God, I'm on, if I'm honest, there's a lot of me and this world that still comes out instinctually. So Holy Spirit, would you have your way? Would you wash and cleanse and reform and teach and mold and shape me, us, especially when it comes to the other, the them, the enemy that we've built up in our minds. So Holy Spirit, would you have your way among us? God, I pray for those that may be either watching online or here in the room that have not yet come to receive by faith your forgiveness. They have not said, I need you, Jesus. I confess my sin. I turn to you. God, may even tonight be a night of turning, of washing, of cleansing, of forgiveness, of grace. Jesus, help us consider you in new and beautiful ways in the weeks to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.